How's it going, everybody? Morning. Morning. I gotta say, Tyler, I love your picture when you pop up. Oh, thank you, thank you. I love it. Good. Yeah, I just, I just now noticed. I'm like, wait, what? All good, buddy. It's all good. All right, all right thank you, Bobby. You're alive. All right. Here. It's good. Randy. Randy. Sam. Awesome. All those people. Okay, we'll wait a few more minutes. Isaac, you've never looked better. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, you get a good picture of Isaac's ceiling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I gotta see it. Wait a second. Oh! <laughs> what the heck? You're indoors. No need for a ski cap, bud. What the heck? It's like our, gar our garbage. How many right. people can this hold? Oh, we can go up to 100. Seriously? Yeah, which would be insane. There's a video of this yeah. woman. Yeah, if we upgraded, to, they have one more version above this one that uh, if you upgraded, you can do up to 300 people. Oh my God. Like, there, there was a video of a lady that it was like, this is what the quarantine's doing to people. And it was like, this woman was using this app and she sat down on the toilet and didn't realize that the camera was on and her boss <laughs> fired her because it was a work conference. Yeah. 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 You got to be careful. Yeah. There even been stories about, um, uh, even like at the church, you know, if you have one of those uh, wired microphone, wireless microphones, and the sound guys don't mute it, and if you're not muted, and you go into the bathroom and you go in the auditorium, you can hear the flushing and. Yeah, it's always fun. We had that problem at school too, because for the musicals and for all the productions, we'd have those headsets, those head mics. And so if the sound guy up in the booth was generally a student, which didn't necessarily do their job, you'd um, hear a bunch yeah. of stuff. I had a 15 second like quick change in the last musical. And I was just on stage and I was like, it was ready for my big scene. And it was like the last technique or, or like the last technique, like day rehearsal. And they, they were yelling at me. They're like, Emily, we can hear you say, go, 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 change me, change me. Yeah. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> it was it's okay. It all worked out at the end. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Making some good memories that way. 
We had a hot mic during Lame Is. It was really bad. He we got off stage because like the first scene, it's a bunch of prisoners. Yeah. And like right out it was it's all guys and then right afterwards like we went backstage and he was like we nailed it but then he added a bunch of other words in there that i won't say <laughs> thank you jack mm. or Karen. Thank you. yeah i was just keeping a filter on it today yeah I appreciate that i mean the holy yeah. spirit should be your filter but you know whatever i mean <laughs> yeah on a different note, I found a good use for my John Calvin book. Oh, yeah? What's that? Yeah, it makes a good iPad prop. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, I thought you said that you had run out of toilet paper. I'm sure it was, oh. it was a good fire starter. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, it's serving as an iPad prop. It might serve for a you know, bonfire later, but who knows? That's so funny. Yeah, for those of you that don't know the background, so for the systematic theology class I just taught in the Bible Institute, I had them read through the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and um, I got a lot of a lot of flack for them. Like, hey, listen, it's good for you to read this guide directly for yourself, so that way you know when people start to bring up Calvinistic doctrine, what he actually said for himself. So <laughs> afterward, there's a lot of people that said, "Can we return the book?" I said, "No, no, 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 this is all right good deal okay well let's go ahead um and i'll mute everyone's mics here real quick and all right there we go okay all right so you do have the ability to unmute yourself if you'd like to i can also manage that myself um you guys did pretty good last time muting and unmuting so if you want to go ahead and do that uh and then also you've got the you know raise your hand function as well so we'll do the same thing that we did um yesterday and we'll go through john chapter two this one should be a good discussion i was just going through some stuff uh, before jumping on here and working through some things that i know you guys may want to talk about um and so we'll kind of address those things as they come but let's get someone to open up with prayer first and then we will get things rolling in the chapter chapter two thank you tyler i'll unmute you real quick all right go for it bud all right Dearly Father, Lord, I just thank you for the time that, uh, for our discussion, Lord, that uh, it can be one good one, Lord. Lord, I just pray that uh, everyone can learn something today from this discussion, and I just pray that um, that I could, we can have a good rest of uh, spring break, and Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so who would like to kick things off for us as far as observations, questions that you have, anything like that? Chapter two, John chapter two. All right, Alana, go ahead. So I had a question about the last two verses. Yeah. So 24 and 25, I'll read it. It says, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Yeah. So I cross-referenced to Matthew 9, 4 and John 52. And basically what I got from it was like, Jesus knows that their lives are full of sin and they don't have the love of God in them. And then I looked up commit in uh, the Webster's 1828 dictionary. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of definitions, but I think in this context, he was talking about like to give and trust, to put into the hands or power of another or like to entrust them. But could you like further explain these two verses? Yeah, 
Absolutely. In fact, I just read something in my um, reading last week. I think it's a good uh, cross-reference for this one. Um, let's see here. Let's see if I can find that one. Okay. All right. So I got that one. Okay. So, um, so really, you have a couple of things. First of all, this is the first miracle that he had done to prove that he was God come in the flesh. And so after he performed this miracle, I mean, there was a lot of people that were super excited. They're like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? Could this be the Messiah? And so that's where you have verse 23, uh, where it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles, which he did. And then verse 24, where it says, he didn't commit himself unto him because he knew all men and he knew what was in men in verse 25. So there were some people that straight out of, out of the gate, that they knew that he was the Messiah, they believed that he was the Messiah based on the miracles alone. And he decided to not give himself over to those people and to what they wanted, because really the people of Israel wanted to overthrow the Roman government. They want to have their kingdom back. They want to have their king again for the, in the nation of Israel. And they want to have that established uh, and not have the Roman rule over them on a daily basis. So when they saw the Messiah, or when they were looking for the Messiah, that was one of the big things that they were looking for, that the Messiah would be the one who would take away the Gentile control over the nation of Israel. So when they saw his miracles and the supernatural power, they naturally started to think, man, this is the guy. We want him to overthrow the government. And so him, you know, what he says here, where he says he knew all men and he knew what was in man, he knew what they really wanted. And it was really out of the lust of their hearts that they wanted him to overthrow the Not government. like I need a savior or anything. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, so that's kind of the, the context overall when you look at the nation of Israel historically with the Roman government being over Israel. And the other one that really stood out to me too, because um, even the disciples to a certain extent struggled with this a little bit. And in John chapter 7... Uh, and it would be in verse, and I know we'll get there um, in a few days, but in John chapter 7, and it is um, verse 6. So you have um, the disciples here, and they were basically asking him to go to the feast. And here you have in verse 6, it says, Then Jesus said unto them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. So the people were always ready. I'm like, okay, Jesus, is it now time? Is it now time for you to take over? Is it now time? I mean, like now, this would be perfect. And Jesus is like, hold on a second, guys. Your time is always ready, but my time has not come yet. So this kind of goes along with there are times and seasons that are in the hands of the Lord, as Acts chapter 1 talks about. And uh, in that in that um, context, God knows what he's doing, and he has a perfect timetable that he wants to lay out for his plan, even though we might think, all right, God, this would be the perfect time for you to do this. And I think there's a great application there for us personally, because I think for a lot of us, we're like, oh, man, God, if you were just to do this, this would be amazing. Or yeah. if this could work out this way, this would be amazing. But God's like, would you just hang on a second? Just trust me. I know what I'm doing. My time is perfect but it's hard for us to wait. And so I feel like with the first miracle, 
you have these people that struggle with the exact same thing. Is that good? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no problem. All right, who else we got? Questions, observations? Hello? Hey, Bobby. Oh, it worked. All right, cool. Um, I just, now's a good time because I actually had those two verses written down um, and kind of probably did a very similar study that Alana was saying. But my question at the end of it was um, just kind of a personal evaluation. If God was coming unto me or Jesus was walking unto me, what would his perspective of me be? Would he pass on by and say, yeah, I know what your heart is and either A, you're not ready or B, you're not at the right spot. Um, yeah. so it's just those, it was really a gut check of, I think we miss a lot of opportunities sometimes because our heart's just not where God wants it to be or where it should be. Yeah. And it's not like Jesus came to them and said, Hey, if you do this, this, and this, you'll be in the right spot. It's like, no, he's moving. And he, sometimes there's no time to wait for us to get to that point. We right. waste a lot of time and then right. we miss out on opportunities like him. Right. No, that's good. Yeah, and I even think about this morning, I was, you know, just had some personal time with God where I'm just like, man, there's so many times where I just don't yield to him um, when I need to and yeah. uh, and really expose my heart to him, but also exposing it to myself what my true intentions actually are. Um, yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, we got um, Emily. Okay, so there's probably some really obvious explanation that we've already probably talked about, but yeah. like, why, why was it, why was this his first miracle? Like, why did he choose to turn water into wine for his first miracle? Was that like a way to kind of like test some Christians in the future? Like if they're struggling with that issue and they get saved and then like, this is, a str I don't like, um, like, why did he decide to do that? Like, it's a, it's a good question. I, I mean, um, I can only give you just an educated guess, I guess, in, in, from my perspective. Um, I think there's a couple different reasons. One, you have a wedding scenario, um, which I think is a great picture of what God really desires to have with everybody, with the nation of Israel, between himself, between the church and himself. So I think that really tells a lot. Um, but I think the other thing is that the, the one thing that you see here is that this miracle happened by just the words that proceeded out of his mouth. And okay. so the first thing that he says really establishes the authority of his spoken word uh, and really the authority of the word of God alone. Because um, each miracle, the way that it even unfolds is very unique. Uh, it shows a different um, just aspects of his power and who he is. And so I think there might be an element there because in chapter one, he's called the word of God and he was in the beginning with God. And here he does this miracle by the spoken word. Similar to, similar to how he has power over all creation. So um, so I think there's that. And then there's a lot that goes in with wine in the Bible when it comes to the fruit of the vine versus fermented wine. Uh, and even in, in Deuteronomy, there's, there's pictures of um, fermented wine being a picture of, of evil um, and the vine of the earth. And then you have God's vine, which is always the fruit of the vine, which is never fermented. And the nation of Israel have being that picture of the vine, the church being the picture of a vine. There's just a lot of correlations there. I think there's many different reasons, but I've never looked at it intensely to try to figure that one out. But it's a good yeah. question. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All right. And then let's see here. Uh, Leah, what do you got? Okay, am I unmuted? You are unmuted. Okay. Um, in verse six, um, 
with the numbers uh, study paper thing that you sent me, yeah. um, looking at the number six, and I'm like, I don't know if this has any correlation. Like, I don't know how to different like how to difference when a number is important in the Bible and when it's not. But I looked at it anyway, and on the little sheet that you gave me, it cross-referenced to thirteen uh, Revelation thirteen eight. And it says, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And I have no idea how that correlates or even if it does. So can you please explain? <laughs> yeah. And give me that verse again. Let me see if I can look that one up. In Revelation. Revelation 13, 8. 13. It's the only verse that was on the little sheet. All right. For which number? Six. Okay. Okay, so that goes with. Um, I know it's the number of man. Right. But I don't know how it correlates with that number. Okay, let me see if I have that one and that one. Okay, uh, it might have actually. It might have been a typo because if you look at verse eighteen of that same chapter, it says, "Here in his wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is six hundred three score and six, which is six six six. So I may have not put the one there. So that might have just been my fault. But verse eight would make sense to you because those that dwell upon the earth who are not written in the Lamb's book of life will receive the mark of the beast, which is verse eighteen. Um, okay. So because it's the number of his name, um, and that's what it says in verse seventeen that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then it says here is wisdom and it gives you what that number actually is. So mm -hmm. that may have been a typo. I don't know, but yeah, six is definitely the number of man. And uh, whether or not that has significance here, I'm not sure. I can't say that I'm confident that it does have any significance having six water pots, but it may just because it's a celebration of man um, at a wedding feast there's nothing really evil about it. Like the number six is not evil in itself. Um, but when you put it with the number of the Antichrist of 666, then that's where you have to get the evil connotation to it. So yeah, it may or it may not. I'm not really sure, but I think that's a good observation. So it might have some significance there. Awesome. Thank you. All right. And then um, Haley Hulse, did you want to say something? I noticed you unmuted. Yeah. Um, okay, go ahead. I have a comment, but I also have a question on something. Yeah. Um, I just kind of back to the first thing you said, I had a comment on how like Jesus knew the man's intentions. Yeah. And actually last night when I was reading this, um, I was just thinking of like how quick we are to work so much harder for man than for Christ. Mm -hmm. um, just for an example, like when I run, it's way easier to, you know, get that record or run super fast when there's a bunch of people watching especially if I know them then if I'm just like out there by myself with the Lord yeah. um and so I just love how Christ he knows he like just knew that man's intentions were so much like lesser than his um so I just thought that was really cool yeah. but I also had a question on verse um 17 yeah um it's just kind of confusing to me like he's saying that their house will consume him so my bible cross references it to psalm 69 verses 9 mm -hmm. um is that just saying that like 
I, I don't necessarily understand what it's saying. Like, his disciples will be overtaken by, like, heaven? Is that kind of what it, the message is? No. Uh, so, okay, so in this one, so it, the looking at the context, you have verse 13, where they, the Passover's at hand, he goes up to Jerusalem, he was found in the temple, those that sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and changers of the money, uh, of changers of the money sitting, and when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out, so basically he upends the temple, and the reason why he did that was because they had turned the temple into a place where, I mean, it was just basically the love of money, and so they were buying and selling all these sorts of things for people to be able to participate in the sacrifices and the other things that were going on, but they were basically making money off of God. Um, and so the context is you have the things of God are very, very precious to him. And if you choose to, to basically make a profit off of the things of God to satisfy your own flesh, that angers God. And so when he came in and started flipping all the tables and everything and saying, get out, because they weren't, they weren't actually helping the people, they were hurting the people. And so when the disciples saw that, and then it says in verse 16, and said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. So stop making money off of the things of God. They should be ashamed of themselves, which can go a lot with there's a lot of pastors and a lot of churches out there that are really not in it for the right reasons. They're in it just because they want money and power and influence over people. And then in verse 17, and his disciples remembered that it was written, which is that cross reference that you had in Psalm 69. Um, these things uh, take these things, or I'm sorry, that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now um, the way I like the way that it says in the King James, because it says zeal of thine house hath eaten me up because it talks about that passion and that desire for God and for the things of God and how it's eaten him up that it's consumed him. So, so Jesus was in a position where he was so passionate about the things of God that his zeal for God caused him to go in and basically upend everything in the temple and cast these people out because they're being very blasphemous towards God. And that's why it says, in verse 9 of that of Psalm 69, the exact same thing, but it stops halfway through the verse, because in Psalm 69, it says, for the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me, and so that is talking about his crucifixion, and what he would bear for the sins of the world, so the same zeal that he had for the things of God and the temple of God, so God would not be blasphemed, is the same zeal that he had when he went to the cross, in order to die for us and to provide us redemption. So it really shows you the motive of Jesus's heart and how it's okay for us to be zealously angry as long as it's godly. Because um, there's, a, there's a place for anger, but oftentimes we misplace that emotion quite frequently. So does that make more sense? Yeah, thank you. Okay, yep, no problem. All right, what else we got? Karen. Didn't, uh, I was about to, take my hand down i answer uh my question myself okay. all right well okay i'm, yep. I'm proud of thank you. you good job all right all right what else we got <laughs> all right ethan let's get you going okay go ahead um so this is kind of so i'm about to kind of like talk about um what we were talking about him at the start and what Haley was speaking about too. 
But in um, verse 24, my Bible actually cross-references it to um, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Mm. I mean, I'm pretty sure that was a camp. Yeah. Person. I can't um, remember um, if it was with Tony um, or Pastor um, um, or Pastor um, Mike Blake. Yeah. Um, but it was just cool, and it was just um, convicting to um, he and stuff um, because um, I um, um, because I know um, Adam, I don't always focus on the hardem issue, and because um, well, that's what yeah. that's like honestly the only thing God um, cares about. So I just thought that was cool when I was um, reading. Um, I mean, I have a question actually too. Yeah. Um, so in verse 14, yeah. um, there's a part that talks about how um, they sold him like um, oxen mm-hmm. and sheep and doves in the temple. Yes. My Bible um, cross references that to um, Leviticus 22 and 19. Um, but um, in that verse, it talks about like having, um, I think it was a sheep without blemish. Yeah. Um, whatever. It's just, um, I wasn't sure why it cross-referenced them that verse to okay. that exactly. Yeah, I think it cross-referenced over to that verse because, um, you know, people that came to bring their offerings unto God, uh, whatever their circumstances we to bring the offering unto God had to bring certain things um, for certain offenses, for certain offerings, for certain whatever. And so okay. I, I think these guys were seated in a, in a place where people could come and then just purchase the lamb, purchase the ox, purchase the doves, and then go in and give it to the priest in order to perform whatever sacrifice that they needed to perform. Now, I don't think God, I don't remember reading in the Old Testament that there was ever a situation where, where people couldn't go and buy the livestock that they needed to do uh, sacrifices. So I think in this scenario, these guys are just charging exorbitant amount of prices. Um, okay. okay. Way above and beyond. Um, okay. But I mean, thinking about how it would have unfolded, you know, when God first instituted the law back in, you know, Exodus and and Deuteronomy, and they were working through it, and they were working through all those Levitical laws that they had to accomplish. I mean, realistically, there wasn't like a marketplace for them to go and buy stuff. So there would have been like, let's say your family, you guys were sheep farmers. And so you had a whole bunch of sheep. Um, So you would have sheep available for people to take and to do offerings with, whether you offered it free or you offered it for just the basic base price of what the sheep would have cost. So that way you're not making any money off of it. You're just selling it for whatever the price was. So that way someone can go and perform that sacrifice. And the same thing okay. for other for other things. So if I didn't have a sheep, I, but I know that I have to offer a sheep without blemish, then I'm going to go to someone who has them and then do whatever I can in order to get that to offer it unto God. Got it. So okay. I think that's kind of how that started. But then over time, as man often just makes everything evil, <laughs> um, yeah. just totally jumped on the opportunity to make money and then that ticked jesus off got so, it i think okay. that's why i cross over to leviticus because it kind of gives you the details of what animals were offered for what sacrifice okay 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 cool all right what else we got 
No other questions, huh? Even the giant elephant in the room of turning water into wine? No one wants to ask that one? <laughs> I have something, Stephen. Okay, good. Um, mine are more just deep thought type observations. Yeah. Um, not really anything profound, but at the beginning, what made Mary think that Jesus was going to do a miracle? Like, why would she say, hey, Jesus, here's, you know, they're out of water, they're out of wine, what are you going to do? Yeah. And then why would Jesus then say, it's not my time, and then go ahead and do a miracle? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I haven't really looked into it any further other than, yeah. of course, Mary would have known that he's the Messiah. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, where's he going? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, um, I've thought about that too, because you have that scenario where, you know, they don't have any wine. And so she's like, <clears throat> um, Jesus, you know, you can totally <laughs> take care of this. And, and then he, and I love his responses, woman, what, I, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. So, you know, this would have been a strange dynamic of you have Jesus who would have been in the home of Mary, Mary knowing all these things and how she pondered all these things in her heart from when he was even born. Uh, to when he got a little bit older and he was in the temple and you know she kept thinking about these things so I, I think that if there's anyone that would have known like when it was close to to that time when he was going to reveal himself it would have been his mom for sure um and so even though it wasn't his time yet she asked him to do something and and i think it's a scenario where he's kind of yeah it's not my time but my mom is also someone who's very important to me and is an authority in my life. And yet God uses that. So even though it wasn't exactly God's timing per se, it became God's timing because Mary asked him to do something. And then he said, you know what? Yeah, I can do that. And then God started it off. So I don't, I, I don't know if that's that, if that's actually true or not, if that kind of seems the way that it plays off because he's like, it's not my time, but yet she asked him and then he's obedient. And yet God uses it in order to magnify himself and God and it's the beginning of the miracles. And so I, I don't know, that's a good question. That's one that I'm not really sure the answer on, but if I had to get a guess, it would be that one. And that God uses it. So regardless of our free will choices, God will still use it um, however he sees fit. But it obviously wasn't in violation of what God wanted. Otherwise God wouldn't have allowed it to happen. Um, similar to when he was younger and he was in the temple and he was asking, they were asking questions and he was answering and they were going back and forth, back and forth. And yet he's like, I'm here to do the will of my father. And yet he was submissive unto Mary and Joseph. So I don't know. That's a good one. I like that one. That's a good one. All right. What else we got? Anybody else? I have something. Um, yeah. Am I unmuted? No, you're good. Yeah. Okay. You're open. Um, there's like a little devotion thing in my Bible and it's just talking about, it made the analogy of like when someone that's lived like a really like good long life um, at it, and then they die and you have to like fit their story into like a super tiny thing in the newspaper. It's kind of like probably what John had to do with Jesus is like take everything that he constantly did and put him in a book. And so at the beginning, like the very first thing it says on chapter two is it just says on the third day. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of wondering like, is this on the third day of like, what? Like, obviously not Jesus's life because he wasn't three days old when he did this, but like, what is it on the third day of? Yeah. 
That's a good question. There's, so this kind of goes back with what Leah had talked about with the whole numerology thing. So numbers in the Bible, you'll see the third day all over the place, which mm -hmm. of course the number three is the number of perfection. Um, you have God being a Trinity. You've got, you know, where he says on the third day, I'm going to rise again. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. Um, and so I think, first of all, that's significant just for that alone, where it's the third day that he does this miracle. So I think that's very significant. But um, the other thing that it says here too is, um, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Now marriages in the Jewish culture lasted multiple days. So it could be the third day of the marriage celebration that they had together. Um, but it doesn't say it directly, but it does say in the third day there was a marriage. And we also know that at the end, um, you have verse 10, where it says the governor of the feast called the bridegroom in verse 10 and saith unto him, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. So if this is the third day into the wedding ceremony or the marriage ceremony and all the celebrations and festivities that they had, then it would go in line with that where, all right, at the beginning, you know, that's when a lot of people set forth the best for everyone to partake in and to enjoy the celebration, but you've actually saved the best until now. So it would kind of make sense that it would be the third day of the wedding celebration. Um, mm -hmm. That would be my best guess based on the context without looking into it too much. But, okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Good one. Yep. All right. What else we got? Any other questions? All right, Emily. Maybe. Um, there you go. Yeah. So this isn't much of a question as just an observation that I thought was really convicting in my own life. Yeah. And I love how all we're told that Mary tells the servants is whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Yeah. And Jesus's directions to them don't really make sense. Like their problem is they don't have wine and he's like, well, fill them with water and serve it. Yeah. And if I were a servant, I'd be like, this, this doesn't solve anything. Right. Um, but they were really trusting and they did it. And it kind of, it stuck out that first of all, they were so trusting of him when they had been told nothing. Yeah. Um, and the second thing was just that he chose to use them instead of doing it himself. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, that really is. Um, I love examples like that because I think there are times where God asks us to do things and be obedient and stuff where we're just like you know what this just doesn't make any sense like why why would I do something like this and God's just like would you just trust me and I mean he does it with the disciples later where he's like all right did you catch anything no we didn't catch anything all night okay throw your net over on the other side what why would we do that we if we didn't catch anything during the night why would we catch something during the day and what difference does it make if it's on the other side of the boat and yet they do it, and then God shows them, yeah, guys, I know what I'm talking about. Um, so, yeah, I think it shows us how little we actually do know, and that we need to really trust God in the midst of all of our circumstances, and that obeying whatever he says is better than anything that we can think or come up with, um, which is very convicting. You're right. That's good. Thank you. All right, and Alana. So um, I have a quick comment. Um, I made a note of this in my journal, but something I noticed a lot was like the 
disciples were thinking of like different verses as like things were going on around them. And that kind of reminded me of like how often we can read our Bible, but not like apply what we learn. Like it's easy to just read your Bible in the morning and maybe you even get something like really good out of it. But then the rest of the day, you don't like meditate on it. And then when it's time to actually use what you learned, you um, your life kind of just falls apart because you didn't like think on the things that God taught you. So I think it's really important just to memorize and like know what you read so that when it comes time to apply it, then uh, you're prepared. Yeah, that's good. And we need to pay attention to what's going on around us. I mean, that's why I've never been much of a journaler. I just, I never have been. I'm, I've always stunk at it, but I found something that works for me. So that way, if I'm reading and let's say I'm reading, you know, three, four five chapters or whatever, if a certain verse stands out to me, I'm going to write that verse down. And then I want to put, I want to write down why did that verse stand out to me? And, and like, even this morning when everybody's sharing stuff, there's verses that popped into my head that I read last week, but I wrote them down. So I remembered them. And the more you do that, the more you read and you write down certain verses. And if you're studying and you do some cross-referencing using, you know, either the cross-references you have in your Bible or if you use the treasury scripture knowledge, which eventually I want to get to how to use that and part of our Sunday morning study that we're missing out on right now. Um, I want to get to how to actually do that because it really started to help me when I began to really learn how to cross-reference. Mm-hmm. I started to then get more exposed to different areas of scripture that connect across books. And so when I'm reading something, I'm like, oh, I remember there was a verse that said something like this. And I'm at a spot now that when I do that, I'm like, okay, where was that at? And then I can say, okay, well, there's these few words that are together. And then, okay, let me type that out, find it. And then I'm like, that's the verse that I'm looking for. And I start doing that more and more and more. So that way when you're in circumstances of life, like even now, where Mm -hmm. things are just weird and strange and changing every day, that you're in a circumstance where you can actually be thinking about something and all of a sudden there's a scripture passage that comes to your mind. Even if you don't know the reference, you know the verse or at least part of the verse. And then you can go to it and actually help you out during that time. So yeah, that's really good. That's really good. And we need to be doing that more. So awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. And then Ethan, maybe. There you are. Okay. Um, so this is kind of going off of what um, Emily was talking about, um, but the whole, like, scenario, I'm at the start of the chapter, it kind of hits me, like, thinking about the Catholic Church a little bit, um, yeah. because they often um, hold Harry to, like, um, a higher standard, and, like, they yes. worship her and stuff, yep. except... She even says him in. She even says in verse five, um, "Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it." So, like she um never asks for um worship herself, and she um even submits to Jesus. So, like it kind of yeah. goes against them what the Catholic Church does um, regarding like the worship of. Yeah. her and stuff yeah it does and i mean was was mary special because of god choosing her yeah of course yeah I mean, that's a high honor that's huge i mean even when you see in i think it's in luke chapter two where mary goes and visits her cousin elizabeth um 
Elizabeth says, man, you're highly favored. And, you know, why would you even come into my house? I don't even deserve it. And you have that scenario. Um, but then you have people that take it way too far because Mary's like, listen, I need a savior just as much as anybody else. And mm -hmm. her prayers to God where she's like, God, my savior. So, yeah, I think that she's special and that she was the right woman at the right time. But people take it to, I mean, and it's human tendency. It's what we do. We take things to the mm -hmm. extreme. Um, that we shouldn't, and we focus on things that are the minors rather than the majors. Every false doctrine is because someone is focusing on the minors. They they leave the main roads of the big things that God repeats over and over to travel down these side roads of these crazy doctrines that end up getting them lost, and they can never get back to the main road again. Yeah. Um, happens a lot, a lot. Yeah, that's good. All right, anybody else have anything? Um, I have a question. Yeah. Um, this is kind of just reminding me. So yesterday I was talking to one of my friends and she is like trying to read through the whole Bible in a year, which is really great. Um, but we we're talking about just like, since we have all this extra time, you know what we're doing. And I was like, you know, I've really been able to get in the word a lot. And then I'm like, so excited. And then there's like, you know, so she was like, oh, I've actually been kind of opposite. You know, I'm like trying to read all these chapters every day, but I've only been able to read like half. And do you have anything that you would like suggest as kind of like saying like it's okay if you're only reading, you know, two chapters or whatever amount instead of like seven, mm -hmm. as long as it's like good quality time with the Lord. Do you have anything that you'd recommend like for me to tell her about that? I would just say, you know, you can just share um, with her about even some of the things that you're learning through the shorter, because for me, like, I've done the same thing. There's, there's one Bible reading plan that I did, and I did it one time, and I thought about doing it again, but I'm like, mm, I don't know, but it's reading the entire Bible in uh, 90 days, and so in three months, read through the whole Bible, and it was insane. I mean, I was reading like 16 to 18 chapters a day. Wow. Um, and on the one hand, it was good to read that amount because you, you get to see over a, a larger chunk of the Bible some things you wouldn't see otherwise. But if you just read it just to read it and you're not getting anything, then it doesn't mean anything. Um, and so it's much better to, to find something or to do something that actually gives you spiritual benefit. So at the end of reading 7, 10, 12 chapters, okay, what did God teach you? Well, I don't really know. Okay, well, then that's obviously not the right thing for you to do. Mm -hmm. Whereas you have other people that, like in our, our adult discipleship, uh, people will write through the book of John and then First John. They'll actually literally write it out. And so they're told to write it out five verses a day. And even just in five verses a day going that slow, there are certain things that you can start to see and certain patterns and certain things that you may not have seen otherwise. But there are times that I've done that and I don't get anything because I'm so focused on writing it out that I don't actually comprehend what I'm doing. So I think it really depends on where you're at and it kind of goes into how everyone's wired and there's certain people that are wired differently than others and trying to figure out what do you need to do. Um, I love right now I'm reading about three, anywhere from, well, it's about six, about six chapters a day. But what I'm doing is as I'm reading, I'm writing down verses as they pop out to me at that moment. Because if I don't in that moment, then I'm not going to remember anything. So, like, let's say she wants to continue reading seven, ten chapters a day. 
I would say that'd be fine. But as you're going through, if there's a certain verse that pops out to you, write it down so you don't forget, why did you write that down? And then maybe go back to it and study it a little bit more. Like take apart some of the verses and take apart some of the words and search the words throughout scripture and try to find some other details about it. Um, that would be some of my suggestions. But I've been in that scenario where I've done way too much and then it doesn't mean anything. But it is more about quality. Because if you don't have quality time with God, then it doesn't matter how much time you spend reading. You know, there is some benefit to it, but you're not spending quality time with God. And that's what he's really looking for. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, what else we got? Anybody? Can I add on to that? Sure. Uh, I just wanted to say that I like tried reading through the Bible um, a while back. And I had to stop because I wasn't getting anything out of it. Because even... Like, even if I read, like, a chapter a day, I was more focused on, like, getting it done and just reading through than, like, waiting to see what God has to say to me. So, yeah, I would definitely tell her, like, quality over quantity. Because you could have someone who reads, like, one verse and gets more out of it than, like, someone who reads, like, ten chapters and gets nothing out of it. So, I mean, I mean, if you can read ten, like, um... It's just important to, like, even just focusing on, like, one chapter, like, how we're doing with John, like, it doesn't have, you don't have to just, like, read through it. Like, I've been, like, writing down notes, and that takes up, like, a good amount of my time, and so, yeah, that's what I would tell him. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I like that. All right, Karen. Am I muted? No, okay. So... <clears throat> like keeping going with that I would never like I don't know how far along she is in her Christian walk but I would not ever recommend like anybody that young in their spiritual walk to just read through the entire Bible it's just not a good idea because at that point it becomes more of a task I, I don't know I, but like reading through a book is enough as it is maybe just a few verses at a time i don't i don't know yeah. i mean i i never tried to read through the whole bible and i i wouldn't even do it now like it, it just doesn't seem like it's something i could do if i was going to do it in a year that's one thing but you know the reading plans just wouldn't i don't know mm-hmm. it's not i know boring. what you mean i know what you mean and and the one thing that i would recommend is um if if someone does want to read through the bible like that to be doing it with someone else. Um, that's why like even in discipleship, like right now I'm discipling uh, someone through the adult materials. And at the start of the year, I told this guy, I'm like, all right, so every year I try to read through the Bible. Um, and I've done it for the past like three, four years. And, um, and so I want to do something a little bit different. And I found a different reading plan where I read through the entire <clears throat> Old Testament in, uh, in one year, but then through the New Testament four times. And so it's something that as I've read through the Bible, you know, four or five years now in a row, I've really found that I spend a lot of time in the Old Testament and not a whole lot of time in the New Testament because the Old Testament's bigger than the, than the Old Testament's bigger than the New. So I wanted to do this instead because if, if there's anything that I should be focusing on now, especially this age in human history, it's the New Testament. And so I'm like, okay, well, this one will be sweet because then I can read the Old Testament in one year and the New Testament four times. 
So it's added on a lot more reading, but I asked this kid if he wanted to do it with me and he's like, yeah, I'll do it with you. And so he and I are reading through it together. And when he falls behind, you know, we talk about it and how to, how to get caught up and, but we're reading through it at the same time together. So if he has questions about what he's reading, then he can ask me about it because you can get lost in a lot of the details of the old Testament and even some sections of the new Testament. And so you'll get a lot more out of it if you're doing it with someone who's a little bit farther along. So. Yeah. Um, I do know that Leah Klein is like doing the same thing. I don't know if they're doing it together, okay. but I know that for like Leah personally, it's working out really well for her and that it's like really helping her. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Good. good. No, that's good. All right. What else we got? Anybody else have anything? Okay. All right. Well, we can't get out of chapter two without talking about the whole section of Jesus turning water into wine, because a lot of people use this passage as justification for drinking um, and alcohol and all that stuff. So I do want to spend a little bit of time on this one. Um, so there's a couple things to, to really mention before getting into this. And I want to show you some cross references. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to share my desktop. Um, and I'm going to show you the cross-references so that way you can have it up on the screen for you to write down some of the cross-references. But there's a couple things to keep in mind. Um, a lot of times when you have conversations with people and they uh, go to this passage to justify their position on drinking, um, number one, they don't know what they're talking about. Um, when you study out scripture and you really come into these passages where it talks about wine uh, especially if you study it out in the King James Bible. Um, one of the things about the King James Bible that I love is that it's translated consistent, consistently from Genesis to Revelation. So if you have a word like wine or a word like love or a word like sacrifice or a word like whatever, you can take that word and put it into a Bible search program or app um, and you can search it all the way through the scriptures and God translates it consistently throughout. Uh, if you have a, a different version of the Bible, that's not necessarily the case. And so then you're more dependent upon cross-referencing tools, which is not bad, um, like using treasury scripture knowledge. But it's one of the advantages that I like about the King James Bibles, because you know for sure that words are translated consistently from, from Genesis to Revelation. So if you were to take the word wine and you were to look, look it up in the Bible throughout the entirety of the Bible, you'll find that there are many different types. So wine can be in reference to uh, alcoholic fermented wine, and it can say just the word wine. Um, and so you have to read the context in order to know if it's talking about fermented wine, or the word wine can be used for, it's called the fruit of the vine, or grapes that are literally just crushed right there to produce grape juice. And so the word wine can be used for fermented alcoholic beverage, or it can be used as grape juice, but you have to study the context to know what's going on. There are other places in the Bible where it talks about new wine. Any place that talks about new wine, you know for sure that it's talking about grape juice. Or the term fruit of the vine is talking about grape juice. Um, but then when you get into the issues of wine, and what I have found is that when you search for the, the term wine and you find it in association with wine and strong drink, almost every time that is in reference to alcoholic wine. So wine that has been fermented over time. And I'll show you a couple passages uh, so that way you can kind of get to know what I'm talking about. But people that use the Bible to justify 
their, um, their position on drinking alcohol. Uh, it's because they don't know the context. So that's the first thing I wanted to mention. The second thing I wanted to mention is that this is Jesus' first miracle, proving that he's the son of God. Do you really think that God, in his first miracle, proving that he's the son of God, would turn water into alcoholic wine? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, if you just use logic for a second, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever that for the very first miracle, proving that Jesus was God, that he would turn something into alcohol. Like, it, <laughs> like I, don't, I don't understand that. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. And then even thinking about it on a logical term, um, the process of fermentation, like fermentation and what it actually is, is it is bacteria that gets in that breaks down uh, all of the all of the the elements that make up that wine in order to to basically turn it rotten, and so when something becomes fermented, it is rotting, and it is actually breaking down into becoming, frankly, poison for your body. So why would God encourage consuming something that is literally something that is breaking down to the point where it's actually turning into poison to poison your body? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But the Bible does not strictly forbid alcohol, and there's a reason for it. Um, and so there's no passage of scripture that says, thou shalt not drink alcohol. Like there's nothing in the Bible that actually says that. And the reason is, is because uh, of one particular chapter, which we'll look at here in a little bit, of it, it really comes down to the fact that it is used for medicinal purposes only. Because there are some medicinal uses for alcohol and alcoholic type things. Like if you were to go and pick up a bottle of NyQuil, you'll find that there is alcohol in NyQuil. Um, and a lot of the drugs that, that we get that are for our benefit, there are uh, elements within those drugs that can be very addictive, that can give you alcohol type, um, you know, uh, feelings or, or, or just how it affects your body. It can do that. And that's why they say, if you take this pill, don't operate heavy machinery. Don't go out and drive a car because it can impair your judgment based on how that drug is affecting your body. So there are medicinal uses for alcohol, um, but there's it's strictly kind of just given within that medicinal uh, area, which is why God has never outlawed um, alcohol in the scriptures and says you should never consume alcohol because there is a time and a place for it, but it is never within a social setting. So the third thing that I wanted to mention before getting into some of the details is that if this is the third day of the wedding, then they've been having wine since day one. Now it's day three. I mean, if they were actually serving alcoholic wine, they would be sloshed. I mean, totally tanked. They would not be even comprehending what's going on. It would be, it would be a disaster. And I know you're laughing, Karen, but I mean, it is the truth. It is the absolute truth. It makes zero sense. You have a multi-day feast where everyone is consuming alcohol. I mean, that would just be, like, how is that in, in, in the glorification of the God of Israel? If you have a Jewish wedding, which is so important to a family, to be consuming alcohol over multiple periods of a day to celebrate their, their coming together in the name of God. It doesn't make any sense. So just on the logical approach, if someone has a right heart attitude, and they consider just those basic things, they would never look at John chapter two as a justification for social drinking. There, there would be no way. So generally, you're dealing with people that uh, already have just a wrong heart attitude. 
So that's just a couple of things I wanted to mention before getting into some of the cross-references. Um, but whenever I approach this topic um, and people point to John chapter 2, I have verses written in my margin of, of this chapter that I go to every single time. And so I'm going to share those with you guys here real quick. Let me get it up and running here really quick. Um, all right. And then I'm going to share my screen. Okay. So you should be able to see, hopefully, um, my screen there that has the Blue Letter Bible um, up there right now. Everybody see that? You can just give me a quick nod if you see it. Okay. All right. So there's several passages that I absolutely love. And um, so we're going to look at these, but also I want you to turn in your Bible to Proverbs 31. Um, Proverbs 31 is going to be the one that I want to spend a little bit more time on. So Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 for me is the one that really is the nail in the coffin on this topic. But just take a look at that first verse of Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. So this is a context where you have wine and strong drink associated together. So we're confident that wine here is talking about alcoholic wine, fermented wine. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever deceived thereby is not wise. So the Bible straight out of the gate says, if you're deceived by thinking that wine is not a mocker and strong drink is not raging, you are not wise. So if you just go and partake in it just because, you're just not wise. Now, the reason why I also love that verse in when you kind of compare it to Proverbs 31, in Proverbs 31, there are several things that really stand out to me. So first of all, um, the context of Proverbs 31 is that you have King Lemuel, which uh, was a king during that time. And then um, there's a lot of debate on who this guy actually was. But it says the words of the King Lemuel in verse one, the prophecy that his mother taught him. So this whole chapter is a mother's heart towards her son. And she is sharing with him the most important things that he should know. Now, I know as a parent, that there are certain things with my kids that I am going to major on. There are certain things that I want to teach them where I can hopefully guide them in the right way to go. And so knowing that these things in Proverbs 31 are things that are very important to this man's mother and knowing that this guy is a king, that she's going to be looking out for him, there's a couple of things that she lays out that are just basics. So the first thing that she says here in verse 2, what my son what the son of my womb, what and what the son of my vows. Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. So the first thing that she tells him is that you need to be careful when it comes to your lustful desires as a man towards women, and you need to have self-control. Because if you don't, it's going to destroy your kingship. And that is a great, great lesson for a lot of young men. And it's a great lesson for you young ladies to really understand uh, the weakness of some men when it comes to these sorts of things. But the straight out of the gate, the first thing that she says is, my son, be careful when it comes to women. You've got to be careful because if you're not careful, it is going to destroy your ability to be a good king. So that's interesting. 
The second thing that she lays out right behind it is verse four. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. So stay away from alcohol. If you're a king, you need to stay away from alcohol. Why? Verse five, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. So if you consume alcohol, you're going to forget the things of God. You're going to forget the law because you're going to be out of your mind. You're not going to be thinking properly and you're going to pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted because you're not going to be thinking soberly, righteously, objectively about the people that are around you. So that's huge. But then she says, when it's okay for someone to have wine and strong drink, verse six, give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish and wine unto those that be of heavy heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. And so in that scenario, it's interesting, there is permission for wine and strong drink to be used in two scenarios. Him that is ready to perish, which is interesting because if you think about it, when someone medically speaking is down to, there's nothing more that we can do to help them, they are going to die. The medical professionals say, we just wanna make them comfortable. So they give them medication in order for them to be comfortable as they are going through the last moments of their life because they are getting ready to die. And they're in a lot of pain and we can ease their pain and let them go away peacefully. In that scenario, it's okay for someone to have some sort of medicine or alcohol in order for them to go through those very difficult times. The same thing is true when it comes to surgery. When people are going through surgery, oftentimes they're given heavy narcotics in order to deal with the pain. It's the same sort of thing. And so in that scenario, it's completely okay. And then it says, in wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. There are people that struggle when it comes to broken hearts, become that, that struggle with issues of, of mental instability, that they do need a certain medication in order to get them through the hard times that they're going through. Uh, there's been stories that I've heard from Pastor Tom and, and other things that they've dealt with within ministry where there have been mothers that have gone through some incredibly difficult things with losing their, ch their children. And in those scenarios, you know, if they're really unstable and they need something to help them get through, they'll oftentimes go to their doctor in order to get some sort of medication in order to help them go through that time. And if medication is not available like it was back then, and they're saying, you know what, give wine to those that be of heavy hearts. It will help them out. Now they need to be careful because just like you can get addicted to certain types of medicine and pain meds and other medication like that, you can get addicted to the feeling that alcohol brings. But as someone is working through the pains, the deep pains of the heart issues in their life, sometimes medication is necessary in order to get them through those sorts of things. And so in this scenario, verses six and verse seven, it tells you when it's okay for those things because we do need them based on the issues of life that are going, that are going on, whether it's death, dealing with um, just pain when it comes to medical procedures or things that are going through. I will tell you, if I happen to be in, in the backwoods of some jungle in Africa and I needed to have surgery and there was no medication around to put me under, I would probably drink alcohol in order to, before I went in for my procedure because it would numb the pain of what's going on. But as far as casually drinking just for the fun of it, she says very explicitly from verse four, that it's not for kings to drink wine and strong drink.
because if you do, you're going to forget the law. You're going to pervert your judgment. You're not going to make good decisions as the king. So based on those things here in Proverbs 31, it lays it out very, very well. Now, there are some people that might say, well, I'm not a king. Okay. Uh, actually, you're wrong because you are. If you were to go over to, and I have it on the screen, Revelation 5.10, those of us that are born again, God actually calls us kings and priests. So if, you, if, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, Revelation 5.10 says, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. God has actually named you a king and a priest, and it is against God's command for kings and priests to just consume alcohol for no good reason, social settings or not, because it's going to pervert their judgment. They're not going to be able to make good decisions, and it's just not going to go well. So when you look at Proverbs 31, where she says, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes to strong drink. That also applies to us as well during this time because God calls us kings and priests. So you have that just in general. Um, another couple of good cross-references here, and then we can open up for discussion, is Habakkuk 2.15. If Jesus actually did turn water into wine, then he would be in violation of his own word because in Habakkuk 2.15, it says, and I have it up on your screen, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. It is against God's command in the scriptures to not cause your neighbor to drink to the point where he gets drunk. And so if Jesus were to turn water into wine, he would be in direct violation of Habakkuk 2.15. So we know for sure that he did not turn water into alcohol in John chapter 2. Another couple good passages here is Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 28. Isaiah 5, this is really interesting because I definitely believe that it's the day and age that we live right now. But Isaiah 5, verse 20 through 24, again, I got that one on your screen. It says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the, righteous, the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as the dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So he specifically says, Woe unto them that are mighty in drink to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle strong drink, because those are the ones, verse 23, that justify the wicked and take away righteousness from the righteous. So that's exactly what it'll do, and God says, Woe unto them that do it. The other one in Isaiah that I love, too, is Isaiah 28, and it talks about the priests, specifically the context here, and it says in verse 7, but they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priests and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment, for all the tables are full of vomit and filthiness 
so that there is no place clean. And then it starts to go into what God actually desires. Whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine, God's truth? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little and there little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak unto this people to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith he may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. So these prophets and these priests that have erred through strong drink and through wine, they do not have the ability to have proper vision. They stumble in their judgment. And when the word of God comes unto them, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, it will actually cause them to fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Because that's how, as far as these verses go, this is a great example of how we should learn the scriptures. When we learn the scriptures, it's always precept upon precept. It's always line upon line. It's always here a little, there a little. We can't learn everything all at the same time. We learn it as we cross-reference the Bible, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And if we are not careful and we fall into the ways of this world rather than the word of god being something that builds you up the word of god will be something that will cause you to fall backward and be broken and snared and taken but the context of those verses is talking about people that err through wine and strong drink so those are just some basics that i wanted to give you guys and at least show you some of the verses so that way you can have a better idea of how to maybe study this out for yourself um, and even when it comes to discussions with other people, maybe you have a friend that struggles with this. I don't know. Um, but it's something that I've thought a lot about and had to work through, especially for someone in my position. And in our world today, where we have a lot of people that justify uh, drinking and saying it's completely fine, when the Bible really says opposite. So are there any questions about that? Any comments anybody wants to make? Or anything they want to add, maybe? Okay. All right, good. Well, then I must have done a really good job of explaining it. So, all right. Okay. All right, great. Um, all right, well, then that's it for today. Tomorrow we'll do John chapter 3. I love John chapter 3. So it's going to be a good one to go through with Nicodemus. Um, does anybody want to close this out with a word of prayer? And then we'll be done for today. I can pray. Okay, thanks. Um, Lord, I thank you uh, that we can all come together uh, today and just spend, you know, as much time as we want just looking into what you have to say. Um, and I pray for the people uh, that are maybe just don't have this and that are just looking so badly for something that uh, this would be a time you could reveal that to them. Um, I thank you that your word is alive and active uh, just, as it, just as much as it was. Uh, thousands of years ago um, today. Um, and I thank you just for the blessing that we can become close to you and spend more time to you in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Haley. All right, everybody. Um, tomorrow, same time, 10 a.m. And uh, feel free to pass this link out to other people in case somebody would want to join in. Um, when they do, we can try to do whatever we can to embarrass them. Just kidding. We won't do that. Um, have them sit on their chair. We can do that. That'd be weird. 
All right, but we can go ahead and pass it along and we can get more people to join. We had more people today than yesterday. So if we can get more people to jump in on it, I think this is good for us to do together. All right, guys, see you tomorrow. Thank you.